Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Deluxe Podcast with me, Julie Smith. And this week, more, much more from that Yotam Ottolenghi interview that we first heard last week. Here we go deep, discussing identity, peace, food, and avoiding food battles with the kids. I started by asking him how an Israeli helped to create the wow factor in British food. And you've always talked about creating drama in the mouth. You've yes. always been that man who adds, I mean, like, even the word flavour bombs, which you use, it's about throwing in something just to mix it up and make people go, wow. Exactly. And that's still what you're all about, isn't it? I remember when you and Sammy first got together yeah. that you were a little underwhelmed, shall we say, by British cuisine. <laughs> and that was your first mission, wasn't it? To really kind of to create that drama in the mouth. It's never been a mission, but it's just been my instinct. So, uh, for me, the joy of cooking is not about telling people what and how they should eat. It's just getting them to catch the bug. You know, so if you, if you, eat, if you cook cauliflower in one way, and someone else cooks cauliflower throughout their lives in, in another way, and then you say, like, hey, actually, you can take your cauliflower, you can charcoal it, you can add mustard, you can add tons of herbs and then you can gratinate it in a way you've never done before and they eat and they go like oh my god that is so much better than I've tried before then that's kind of my my mission as, as, as you call it accomplished because it's not about telling them what they do wrong it's about getting them to see how things can be done differently and how delicious vegetables can be without uh, that much effort. Yeah. Now you were, have always been known as the vegetarian who eats meat. Yes. There's a lot of meat and fish recipes in Simple. Um, you know, lots and lots and lots of vegetables as well. Yeah. Everything that we would expect from it. But chicken marbella, for example, <laughs> the, the, the is it sea trout or sea bass? I can't remember. With mirin and ginger, yeah. and you know, you've you've strayed away from Middle East. Yes. And I've always said, you know, my roots are in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, but I've always found the fascinating the rest of the world really fascinating so I've been very happy to mix stuff from North Africa obviously but then Central Asia Southeast Asia, Mexico places where the, the, the sun shines and you've got these kind of you've got these um, the sense of abundance and maturity of ingredients and strong flavors then if that works that works I, I, don't, I never I don't like limiting myself to one part of the world or one way of cooking yeah yeah so I mean that idea and you're absolutely right it's a long time actually since Otolenki was really Middle Eastern but we still yeah. see you as very much uh, about Israel actually and yeah. I, I wonder how Israeli you still feel all this time on 
Well, the, the interesting thing is that the first book that I published with Sammy, that is 10 years ago, the Otsulengi cookbook, in it came out in 2008, uh, was the whole Otsulengi spectrum. Uh, from the cakes to the salads to the, to the, to the uh, meat and the fish and the breads. I mean, everything is there. And that was not a very Israeli or even Middle Eastern cookbook. I mean, it had a lot of those ingredients, but it had, it had what I would call the modern British deli uh, effect kind of look. It had a lot of things. It had a lot of freshness, lots of fresh vegetables, lots of herbs, and freshly baked cakes. It's only the, the next, the book after next, plenty came next, but that was still vegetables, that Jerusalem that we have become associated with Israeli... Which is my Bible. Uh, Jerusalem yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> with Jer- I'm, I'm very glad that it's your Bible. <laughs> You're a good disciple. <laughs> uh, it's only then that Sami and I started being recognized or is, uh, as Israeli or Palestinian or Israeli and Palestinian cooks and very much identified with this part of the world. But if you break down the recipes in the other books, we've always been mm. with our feet everywhere. And the book that came after um, Plenty More was Nopi, which is my collaboration with Scully, Ramal Scully, who is from Southeast Asia and Australia. And yeah. there it's the whole kind of Pacific Rim and everything uh, as well. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot there. But I think deep down inside, I probably would, would be most identified. I'd also put most identify myself. Uh, with the Middle East and the Mediterranean as a kind of a bigger uh, definition. And I heard somewhere that your books don't actually sell very well in Israel. Is that <laughs> true? Uh, so only one book, and that's the first of Tulangi book, has been translated into Hebrew. None of them have been translated into Arabic. And they're selling very good, very well in Israel in English, but the, 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 in Hebrew it's, we've never managed to find the right partnership uh, over there, and I, I, I think there's probably various reasons for that uh, reason. I think for me, we are I'm perceived, and probably Sami to, to a certain extent as well as Israelis operating abroad. I don't think this is the right perception. As I said, you know, I think we're doing a lot of interesting things, but that perception means that they think, oh well, they we don't need to be taught by someone, you know, about our cuisine by someone who who is not even here. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why this has not been a massive uh, I wonder if it's, if it's the combination of the Arab and the Jew, whether that is still that a big help. issue. It doesn't help. Uh, I think it is a big issue. And um, even with the Jerusalem cookbook, there were a lot of discussions about translating it into Hebrew. And one of the things that came up first thing in those conversations is whether this book would be altered in any way to pacify or make some people happy on either sides. And I was, Sami and I were extremely uh, clear that we are not going to alter anything. You know, it's not, we're not going to make it a kosher cookbook yeah. and we're not going to omit images that some people would find, you know, troublesome. Mm. And I stand behind this 100%. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in, in many ways, Israeli food, Middle Eastern food, Levantine food, which has been the same for thousands and thousands of years, is, is, is peace food. It's the food that everybody eats on the, their tables. And yet, a book like that could still yeah. produce some kind of controversy. Yeah, I mean, I think food, like many other things, can be as divisive uh, and as peace and harmony inducing as you want it to be or, or what you, you, you can do with it. So, you know, you go to certain parts of the world and food is extremely, extremely... Uh, explosive subject, you know, you, you need to go to the to the 
place where Turkey meets meets uh, Greece, and you find the same kind of conversations. Oh, we own it. This is what it's mm-hmm. called. Uh, no, this is Turkish coffee. No, this is Greek coffee. No, this is Arab coffee. Between us, it's pretty, they're pretty much similar, but you would never say it to the person in your face because you find it offensive. So these sens- sensibilities and sensitivities are really very much part of what you get in kind of in conflict zones, you know, and where things are way more important than je- where food comes from and where, where it was its line- what its lineage is. Yeah. You know, we've, we are in a great position to be in Europe now where the French and the Italians do not need to fight on who invented what and who makes the best cake or paste mm-hmm. or croissants or if Catherine de' Medici did recreate uh, Italian food in France and that's the whole story of French fine cuisine. It, you could have those discussions but nobody thinks that it's going to create any kind of real strife or struggle. No. But when you go to p- places where wars happen, that becomes really important. Absolutely, because it's all about identity and you look at you know, dis- diaspora all, all over the world and you find people taking the food from home to the new land to make themselves feel at home. Australia is a classic example, and I wonder if Britain has become that, as we've had such so many people coming from different cultures to make London, in particular, an extraordinary, diverse culture. I wonder if that has to do with where we are with London food. Yes, I think that is true to an extent that um, London has become this big hub of cultures where food is both interesting and uh, very vibrant and evolving uh, and that's due to immigration and people settling here from all parts of the world it's true about restaurant scenes, when by restaurant I mean from somewhere you eat a street corner to fancy restaurant, it's true about what people cook in their own homes but I have to say one thing about London and other big international hubs, they do bring um, people from all the world and they cook together but it doesn't happen over a long period of time and organically so when you look at places that have had time to evolve then cuisines are um, are more solidified I can't really tell you what London cuisine is it's just a lot of people cooking next to each other and I guess affecting each other in some particular way but when you go to a place like Morocco which has had you know Berber culture Muslim culture, Islamic culture, Spanish, a bit of French, a bit of Italian, and that has happened over a very long time. You get a very kind of mature cuisine, mm. and that it has all this time to evolve. So those are very two very different creatures. Yes, and and actually, Italy on the other hand is still very regional because actually the separate identities between towns and regions is all about the Italians clinging on to who they think yes, they are absolutely. from one place to another. Yeah, and food is at the center of that. I guess there's other aspects of it that I probably don't know quite as well as food. But yeah, food is at the center of, of a sense of national and, and local identity. Dialect, food, it's, it's kind of the same thing, absolutely. certainly in, it, in Italy. Um, yes, I suppose what, I, what that leads us on to is, you know, you've got two small kids now. Yeah. Um, what do you feed them? <laughs> uh, I feed them... Ah, well, I, I would, the answer that I would have wanted to give you is they eat what we eat. Yeah, but I should say, your husband is my, Northern Irish. Northern Irish, yeah, my husband Carl is from Northern Ireland, and, I, and our kids are five and three, just about. And, um, and in those particular ages, or these young ages, uh, kids' palates are kind of way more sensitive, there's much less predictability than an adult, we all know that, we, we've all been kids, and some of us have had kids. 
so I would I would have loved it that they ate everything that we eat, but I can't say they do. Uh, so, but I've, but what do they leave on the plate? What do they leave on the plate? So, the first thing they would leave, leave on a plate is a vegetable. I'm not saying that they don't eat vegetables. They do eat vegetables. But the one thing they wouldn't touch is a fresh tomato. They'll eat any tomato sauce, but they would never touch a fresh tomato. They just got into their head that it's too acidic or something. I think they literally didn't really like it at the beginning. My daughter used to say that when she bit into a tomato, it was like a swimming pool exploding in her mouth. Yeah, Which she hated. Good, that's a good... That's yeah, a but good she hated it. Yeah, she hated it. Yeah. She doesn't hate it anymore, does she? No. Yeah, well, there you go. No, I think... So they, but they do eat veg. You know, they like beans and broccoli... Uh, they, ver- they like crunchy, fresh vegetables like cucumbers and, um, and peppers. Mushrooms, yes, they can take it or leave it. What I think, what I, I've learned is that it's very unpredictable. One day they like something, the next day they hate it, and there's no rhyme or reason. And uh, the other thing that I learned is that when fighting over food with kids, you always lose. You always, always, always lose because they are just so much more strong-willed than we are. So I try not to get into these wars. I try, but I often do. But I try not to. And I think they're average, well-fed kids. You know, they eat lentils, they eat rice, they, eat, they love pasta like any other kids in this country and all over the world. Uh, so they're like, they like their starches, but they eat a bit of everything. So, yeah, I don't have... I don't have a theory on how kids should eat and how you should feed them. Do you do all that stuff of hiding vegetables in, you know, soups and, and stews? I don't, well, not really because they do eat vegetables, but I do feel good when I give them a soup because they love soups. And I know that that soup might have not been eaten if it was the raw ingredients not, not having been pulverized. So I have that kind of sense of satisfaction. They love it uh, when making courgette and pea soup. Uh, that they absolutely love, and I'd, I'm not sure they would eat courgette if I just kind of stir-fried it or, or stewed it. On. So, yeah, but I don't make a really conscious effort to do that. Yeah. I'm really interested in the fact that you started off as an academic. It, I was an academic for a while, and I know that it has a specific sort of way of framing the way that you see the world. You've created a world here. You know the Ottolenghi world, and I know the the plenties and the you know the Ottolenghi cookbook. First of all, you know it, it, it didn't quite catch in a way, but when it did, it really caught, didn't it? You created a world that we absolutely know what Ottolenghi is all about. I wonder if you were a, if you were an academic mm-hmm. exploring the the construction <laughs> of Ottolenghi nurse. Yeah, there would be some myth making. There would be some yeah. you know we, there would what. What do you say about that yeah. as an academic? Well, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting question because I've always been asked, "What is Ottolenghi all about? Like, what is?" So, they, when you look at the, at the kind of a more focused, in a more focused way, they are, people would ask, "What is Ottolenghi food?" And for that, I have a, a, an answer that I've thought about quite a bit before, and that I think it's the it's vegetable heavy. It's got a it's got a big uh, or extensive use of Middle Eastern ingredients. And it's low key in terms of cooking. It's not the stews. It's kind of more the charcoal, and uh, it's got a certain aesthetics that is very clear. It's colorful, and it's abundant. I think that all those things put together create uh, a sense of flavor and aesthetics that people understand. And beyond that, I think uh, there is probably uh, a certain aspect of it that has to do with aspiration, which I have much less control of. 
because that's what people choose to do with, with what you put out there. And then there would be things that I suppose include healthy living and a sense of more of, um, a, a better way of relationship with food. Uh, because and presumably with society, I mean, there has some cultural capital, doesn't yes, it? I mean, you choose your your chef to follow according to the aspiration that you want in the world. And yes. that's what I meant by that construction. Yes, yeah, so there is that aspect, maybe because of my, the relationship that Sammy and I have created. It's a very multicultural kitchen and it's a very multicultural palette. And everybody can kind of relate to it. I hope I'm not breaking down a myth and everybody will go home and say, oh, is that all it's all about? But <laughs> I spend a lot of my time perfecting res- and honing recipes. I, I have a test kitchen in, in, under uh, a railway arch in Camden where I spend literally 70 or 80% of my time tasting, tasting. That's what I do all the time. This is when we, we did the sound check and you asked me what I had to breakfast. I said to you, actually, I don't really normally have breakfast because I wait for 11 o'clock when I've got my first tasting of the day. And for me, this is really important. So as much as we can talk about the other aspects of it, I think one of the reasons why people cook for my books and have had an emotional reaction to the food was because they enjoy the recipes. And, and, and that is really what I try to focus on. Mm, but I think that if you look at all those big narratives, Jamie, Nigella, uh, you, let's yeah. just cook, let's take those three, it is all about authenticity, it is all about the hard work, and it is about uh, rigour, yeah. which takes us back to the academic, and I'm wondering whether you applied that sort of real discipline and rigour yeah. to your creation of this world. Yeah, yeah, I think it, I do, and there's, there, um, I, there's a lot of thought going on, going into uh, each of the different processes that happen, you know, within what you call the Otolengi world which is comprised of books and restaurants and delis and newspaper articles and, and lots of other little things. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of thought goes into it. It's just my nature, really. <laughs> I can't really fight it. Uh, so I would go through a book a million times before I'm 100% happy with it, which applies to the you know curating the recipes, writing the, the, the introductions, photographing the book. I'm very hands-on when it comes to photography. And you, and you do a lot of that. You do The Guardian, but you also do lots of books. I mean, Sweet Tony came out... The last year, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only normally there would be a two-year gap between books, but between Sweet and Simple, there is a, there is a, only a one-year gap. But you'll be happy to hear that there's now going to be. I'm taking a year off next few years, and the following book will come the year after that. Do you know what it's going to be? Um, I do know, but I don't want to share it because I feel that it's really taking shape at the moment. And I think once I've got I've got it in my mind exactly what it's turning out to, the story is going to be more interesting than just something that I'm going to kind of... It's a half-baked process that we're at. Thanks for listening to the Delicious Podcast. You can find much, much more about the world of food in the archives at the all-new-look deliciousmagazine.co.uk slash stories slash podcasts. And next week, I'm with Donald Skeen on boy bands, babies, and back to basics in a slice of his life.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.